Well, this is, there's no new information in my message today, but perhaps it will encourage you to hear it again. The message of the gospel. Borrowing from Paul's model, everywhere he went, and then when he wrote back afterwards, it was a reminder of the same theme. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And I share this because I am cognizant of the fact that it's prevalent in our church society, our church culture, to lose the gospel so quickly. And in my own life, to recognize seasons where I just didn't have a grasp of what this glorious gospel was and is. Like many Baptist children, I prayed a prayer of salvation at the age of nine. I'm not sure what it is about the age of nine. There's something holy about being nine. And I believe it was genuine, and I know that something different was entered into my life that day. But I can remember vividly praying at the front, because as a, my mindset, the only place you could get saved was during the invitation at the front. God only worked there. So I had to wait to get there. And so that Sunday morning, my father brought me forward, introduced me to the pastor, who I'd already met with, so he knew me, but just wanted him to know why I was coming forward to get saved. And so I sat down with a counselor on the front pew, and he said, all right, well, just uh, pray. Ask Ask, in your own words, Jesus to save you. And so I did all that I knew. Jesus, please come into my heart. Amen. That's all I need to say. He said, well, maybe you should use some other words. All right. So nine-year-old thinking, Jesus, I really want you to come into my heart. <laughs> In Jesus' name, amen. So, okay, I, I guess that will do. Fill out this card, which took me longer than the prayer. For years later, I would look back on that day and question, was that legitimate? And even at one point in my teen years, become so persuaded that it didn't take that I would reissue that request again with a little bit more mature language. Perhaps the Lord needed different words to respond to. And then years after that, as a student in college and serving part-time as a worship leader in a local church, I got to the end of a very trying semester, and students, whether present or past, know what it is to get to the ends of those semesters and be so exhausted not only had the exhaustion of the semester, but had the exhaustion of the Christmas events in the church that were, that were, I mean, honestly, as a new worship leader, I wanted to shoot for the moon. So it was ridiculous, the things that I was doing for Christmas that year. I mean, we had a church of about 100 people, but I think we had 150 in the program. We had people doing angels and wise men and shepherds, and we had, uh, we were running low on, attendance for the wise men so we had the same group of four boys walk the three different wise men and three times so that they could get them to the front it was a little ridiculous and i was exhausted and i remember feeling so empty at the end of that night getting ready to head home the next day for christmas and explaining to my pastor that evening i am so empty 
I question my own salvation. And very wisely, my pastor said to me, Scott, I, you're exhausted. You're depleted. I think it would be wise at this point not to grab hold of that thought, but to go home and go to bed. Give it a few days and essentially test yourself and see if you're of the faith. Those are wise words because those are the words of Scripture. I did that very thing. And the Lord affirmed to me that all the things that he had done since age nine were legitimate and were confirmed. But it was a journey of testing that to see if I was of the faith. But I want to speak to those who may be hanging on to some some things like that. They're just questionable. Is this legitimate? Is this right? Am I really saved? Or how do I know that I'm really saved? Or how do I know that the gospel's at work? Or perhaps some that truly believe they are and are not. Because we know from Scripture that those people are here as well. Those who will say in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? And essentially, if I can uh, paraphrase here, teach Sunday school, go on mission trips, and work in VBS in your name. And I will say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. That was a terrifying passage for a period of time for me. Until I put it in the context of the great and glorious gospel. So what did I do when I was nine years old? When I prayed that prayer, Jesus, come into my heart. That's not great language, is it? As a nine-year-old, how does Jesus get in one's heart? That seems very crowded. That seems like a difficult place for him to be. Or was it just the thought that now I'm going to heaven, not hell? Is that what the gospel is? Sort of the fire insurance approach to the gospel? Or the fact that I believed I was forgiven for sins, but I didn't think my sins were that bad. And for a long time, even into my 20s, thought that my salvation where some needed to make a 180-degree correction, mine was like a three-degree correction. I grew up in the church. I had Christian parents. I was in Sunday school and was in church the, you know, whenever the doors were open, was there whenever I was supposed to be. It took years of inspecting myself through the lens of the gospel to realize how depraved I really was. For some, it's easy because they see the outward manifestations of sin. They look into their lives and they say, well, that was bad. But for others of us, it's a little more complicated because it doesn't look bad. But underneath, it's very bad. Perhaps that's part of what Paul was getting at here in his clarification of the gospel. But then there also not only is the individual concern for the gospel, but the corporate concern for the gospel, because that's what had happened in Corinth. The corporate body was losing its grip on the gospel. Now, look back to check the dates on this, and it doesn't uh, doesn't look like it had been very long since Paul was there to preach the gospel to the point where this letter was written to reclaim the gospel, perhaps two or three years. That's not very long. Imagine if our pastor, if Brian had some kind of arrangement where he needed to be gone for two or three years on a missions endeavor. It was approved by the church and they were to hold fast until his return. And within two to three years, he gets a letter saying the church is going through some issues and here are the problems. 
There are divisions between various deacons and Sunday school teachers as to who they follow. There are false teachers who are exalting their teaching and themselves and condemning the pastor, saying his teaching was wrong. There's sexual immorality running rampant in the church. Believers are suing one another for parking spots in the parking lot or seats in the pews. There's chaos in the Lord's Supper. Some come early and drink all the grape juice and leave none for the rest. There's questions about whether or not women should wear head coverings, whether or not a minister should even be paid, about eating food that's been sacrificed to idols, about marriage and divorce, the misuse of spiritual gifts, the chaos in a worship service, those with seemingly greater gifts looking down on those with seemingly lesser gifts. And some are teaching there's no resurrection from the dead. That is a troubled church in two to three years. It would be easy to think that Brian might not come back to that. But knowing his heart, he would come back quickly because he'd want to correct. But how then does Paul correct these various abuses? It's a simple correction, but profound. And it's based upon something that happens again and again in the life of a church. And D.A. Carson explains it very, very well. Though this is quick for D.A. Carson's analogy, it's relevant as we see what can happen quickly. In observing a particular movement, denominational movement in our culture, Carson writes, the first generation proclaimed the gospel and believed there were certain entailments associated. The second generation merely assumed the gospel and advocated the entailments. The third generation denied the gospel and all that was left were the entailments. It is so common in the life of a church, much more than in a denomination, to go through these cycles of losing the gospel. Because if we don't keep a firm grasp on what the gospel is, the next generation will merely act under the shadow of what was there. And the third generation, which comes along very quickly, will know nothing of the gospel. And will, they will merely keep the trappings. They'll still come to church. They'll stand and sing. They'll sit. They'll pray. They'll go through the traditions that the church has established. But where the generation that established the traditions in light of the gospel is gone... The generation that practices the gospel, excuse me, the, the uh, trappings of tradition absent the gospel will merely go through motions that will lead them to hell. Now, how do we guard against that here? We look carefully at the gospel. First Corinthians 15, Paul writes, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, 
Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. There are two aspects to the gospel that are important to understand. There are historical facts that are associated with the gospel, which must be stood upon as absolute truth. These things happened. And they didn't just happen as actual occurrences on this earth, but they happened at the fulfillment of prophecy. These historical aspects are at least fivefold in terms of how Paul presents them. Christ died. He was buried, thus verifying the death. He was raised, thus verifying the satisfactory atonement of the death. He appeared to a number of eyewitnesses, thus verifying the resurrection, which verifies the satisfaction of the atonement, which verifies the death. And all of this was in accordance to Scripture. All of this had been prophesied centuries before, and it occurred precisely as God said it would, which then demonstrates this has been a part of God's eternal plan from the beginning. Those are historical facts of the gospel. And if you pull on any one of those or remove them, you lose the gospel. Many denominations today have toyed with this to the point they no longer have the gospel. They've lost it. It's gone. Brothers and sisters, fight for these things. Fight for the truth in your own heart, first and foremost. Don't let the doubt become the truth. Let these things be proven in your life and through your life. The second aspect of the gospel is its application, and it's hinted at and really stated in clarity throughout Paul's writings, but here he pulls the threads. And it's the application of the gospel. So we have an as- a historical aspect of which five things, death, burial, resurrection, seen by eyewitnesses, and prophesied. And then we have the application Now, here's where I want to spend just a few more minutes, because the application is where we can often slip. In fact, I would propose that we slip here before we slip in the historical facts. So the application, I suggest, again, five points. These are a little trickier to see, but I'll try to point them out. First of all, the application of atonement. He cites this in verse 3, that Christ died for our sins. He didn't die just because, first of all, he didn't deserve death, so it wasn't that he died because there was a true crime committed. He died for others. He died that our punishment might be taken on our behalf. Isaiah writes this clearly in 53.5. He was pierced for our transgressions, not his own, ours. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Now, we will repeat the gospel hymns and songs and 
and thoughts every worship service that I have the privilege to lead. Because we have never gained the full depth of what this means that he died for our sins. And it's work. You know, sometimes I'll sit and I'll look at these signs. Enter to worship, depart to serve. It's very helpful. Helps you remember why we're here, what we're going to do. But what often we don't realize is there's a Greek word that both of those are translated from service and worship. Because there's a sense that worship is work. And it's work in here and it's work out there. So sometimes in the context of worship, we work at worship. Sometimes you feel like it's work because I've made you stand too long. Sorry about that. There are some that like to stand and some that would like not to stand. It's always fine with me if you sit down. But there's something about going through like we did this morning, the work of worship, the work of forcing our mind and our heart and our being to focus on the cross that's necessary. And sometimes we just have that moment that after entering in, it happens. Oh, wow. I've just not seen it that way before. I mean, many of you know what I'm talking about, where initially the flesh kind of says, Ah, you know this? This is that story again? Tune it out. He died. You got it. Similar to the words of a man in my church years ago, who when I was encouraging the congregation to really think about how to become a gospel-centered congregation, he stood and said, Okay, okay, I get this. Now, this was a forum for discussion, so this wasn't like in the middle of the service. He stands up and starts... I get this. Okay, so we do the gospel. Then what? There is no then what? The gospel is what permeates everything that we do. I'm going to show you that in just a moment, how Paul writes that to be. But it shows how quickly we can just say, okay, let's get on with it. Is there some new thing we can talk about today? Those are itching ears that ask for that. Discipline yourself to fixate on the gospel. Fixate the atonement. He died for our sins. Second, there is conversion associated with the application of the gospel. We see that the atonement took place in a historical time and place, but there's a place at which application of the atonement comes to us. And that is the moment of conversion. And it is a moment. It's a moment sometimes that's mysterious to discern, as it was for me in my testimony. When did that happen, Lord, as I look back? Was it when I was 9, when I was 13, when I was 22? Was it somewhere in between? For some, they do not know. They just cannot tell. They know that here they were not, and here they were. Somewhere in the middle, it happened. I think that's perfectly appropriate. There was a period of uh, time, and at least in my lifetime, where it was, a, it was almost demanded that if you couldn't give a date and time, you weren't saved. And that caused a lot of consternation to some. That's not in the Scriptures to give a date and time. What the Scripture says is test yourselves to see if you're of the faith today. That's my encouragement to you. Test yourself today. Do you see the fruit of salvation? Do you see the fruit of the gospel today? Perhaps in heaven he'll reveal the date and time. We can go, oh, that's when it was. Wow, that was great. That whole time I've been writing down the wrong date in my Bible. Now I know what the right date is. Could I change my Bible, please? Paul references when he, uh, Jesus appeared to him. Now he referenced this really in the context of the apostleship that he was given 
as one out of due time. But there's many times that this Damascus Road experience is used as a paradigm for conversion because it is indeed the conversion process for Paul. And so he references this conversion process as well in his explanation here. He appeared to me when he received the gospel. So atonement, conversion. The third is maybe, no, it's not maybe. This is the foundation of them all. It's justification. In fact, uh, there's some great notes throughout history about the context and um, priority of justification. Justification, Martin Luther said, is the test of a standing or falling church. As I often warn, the doctrine of justification must be learned diligently, for in it are included all other doctrines of our faith. And if it is sound, all the others are sound as well. J.I. Packer writes, the doctrine of justification determines the whole character of Christianity as a religion of grace and faith. And John Stott writes, nobody has understood Christianity who does not understand this word, the word justification. Now, you might not know the word, but you should understand what the word means. And that is that as he died for our sins, there were two things that occurred in our state of being. One, the penalty of sin was taken. We've talked about that already. But the second is the righteousness that he rightfully earned was imputed to us, was not just placed over us, but given to us in our identity. Now, this is the most mind-blowing aspect of the gospel to me. I have a certain amount of concept of forgiveness. I forgive others, they forgive me, so I know what it is to absolve from responsibility for sin. I don't know what it is to absolve from penalty from sin. So that is something that's beyond my ability to attain to. But I understand that God has done that, that he's forgiven my sins, and the deeper into my life that I go, I realize those sins are much more grievous than I realized when I was a child, and even as a teenager and young adult. But what I have a difficulty determining to get my mind around, how did he take the righteousness of a perfect one and give me that identity? See, this is so important that we understand this carefully and clearly. If I cannot really grab hold that that I'm justified, I will chase my tail spiritually for a lifetime trying to earn something that's already been given. Because I'll, I'll get up to do my devotions and I'll be saying, Lord, I'm, I hope you're, hope you're okay with me. I'm, I'm really hoping this will please you. I hope that my day goes well because I'm doing this. You see, I'm kind of doing this for you. So will you, will you give me a good day? Or conversely, bad day, Wow. I must, have, I must have messed up somewhere. God must not love me, or, or you must really be kind of upset with me right now. So we can be shifted about, tossed to and fro, when we don't understand the concept of justification. That by the placement of His righteousness upon my life, He's always pleased with me. And yet always conforming me to the image of His Son really encourage you to consider places in your life where that's a slippery slope. 
making us like Jesus is the fourth one, sanctification. Two places he addresses this, and he addresses them so powerfully. One of my favorite texts in all of Scripture, especially on this topic. The first one is in verse 2, and I will get back to that to close. So let's skip that very quickly. It's just the concept of being saved. But then verse 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, the other apostles, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. We can become very... I mean, there's, there's discipline here. There's effort here. There's things that we must do. We must work hard. I mentioned that in worship. There are times we work at worship. We work at sanctification. We work at aspects in our spiritual life. There are things that are just difficult because sin is such a foe. But it's a conquered foe. And the one who conquered it is empowering us to overcome it. And so it's grace that fuels sanctification. Now, this is where we depart from the gospel most often because we say, okay, I was saved, I did the gospel, and now what? Like that gentleman in my church. Now what? Now we've got to work. Now we've got to press. Now, that terminology certainly has application from the standpoint of how we move forward. But what we lose sight of is the beauty of this verse. I worked harder than all the rest. Nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace of God at work in me. There was a fuel, an eternal fuel that was fueling that effort. So while there was an experience of effort, there was a dynamic of power behind it. If I do not carry the gospel into the work of sanctification, this is how we continue to do the sanctification, I will strive many times in my own effort. But I must carry these other aspects of the gospel and allow the grace to fuel and then finally, glorification. That's what the rest of this chapter is about. I mentioned that there were some teaching in Corinth that there was no resurrection from the dead. So Paul needed to correct a number of things, this being one of the last ones he corrected, and he spent a lot of time doing it. So we've done well this Easter season to think through that there is a resurrection, and it's critical for what we understand about our own hope and future. Which brings me to my close. Now, my title, this is where I succumbed to wanting to be cute with a title. It's really wrong. <laughs> and the title doesn't really read the way the, the word should. I put receiving, standing, and being as the title. Really, it should read having received, standing, being saved. Because the nature of these words gives us very important observations about the work of the gospel. So here's the home stretch. Four observations about this text that I want to encourage you with. First of all, the gospel has three tenses to its work. Now, very simple, just kind of say past, present, and future. That's kind of cute and it works well and it sort of applies. But there's more than that, so it's deeper than that. So there is a past. Having received... So there's a point in time where conversion took place and the gospel was received. So the gospel's past work began at a day of conversion, having received the gospel, the day my eyes were opened. And that word here is in a tense that relates to the past occurrence. Now, the next one, though, is very unique. Let's look at verse 2, because these 
This interpretation here needs to be understood well. It's actually the end of verse 1. Which you received, there's the past tense, this is the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Now this is, this is one of those marvelous tenses in the Greek called the perfect tense. So this relates to more than ongoing work. It relates to something that has occurred, but it relates to something that continues. And so there's a sense where we are standing, but that we have stood and will stand. So we are standing upon the gospel. Now, if I take into my mindset, we do the gospel, then what? I miss this. I miss what it is to stand upon the gospel currently. In which you stand or are standing. This is the part that I think we lost most when a generation loses the gospel. At least the first slips. We know the past and we sing a lot about the future. But what about between there and then? This is the standing upon the gospel. And then there is another word here that really is a present tense word, but it's a present passive tense word. Being saved. Okay, so there's an active work going on, but I am the subject of the work. I'm being saved. Now that, to me, is very comforting. I'm not trying to save myself. One much more powerful than I, who actually has the capability to save me, is going about the work of saving me. I love that. I rest in that. That he who began a good work in me will continue it to the day of Christ Jesus. When I see the heinousness of my sin, I rest that I'm being saved. And this dealing with sin is a part of the process of an all-wise and loving Father who's about the work of applying the gospel to that, that sin. Second observation, the work of the gospel is absolutely dependent upon the initiator, capital I, of the work. Think about these three things we just talked about. I received what was delivered. Well, how could it be delivered? I couldn't deliver it to myself, so it was given to me. I received it. I'm standing upon a foundation, but the foundation was provided. So again, the initiator provided that. And I'm being saved by a force outside of me. The initiator, the saver, is continuing the work. Third observation, I participate in the work of the gospel. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain, but I still worked. And I worked hard. So his work was sort of inspired, but more than that, compelled by the work of one who was in him, willing, doing, conforming. And finally, the grace of the gospel is internally compulsive, but externally furnished. So I don't have to muster the grace, but I have to 
work in the grace. I have to join the grace that's at work. It's not... It's not that I am doing the work on my own, though I labor, but it is motivated and moved and carried along by an external source, a furnishing of God through the gospel to make me like a son. used to tell in youth ministry in particular, I'm sure I'll be saying this to my children, I would tell young men, listen, if you're really saved, God's going to make you like his son one way or another. You can figure out to some degree what path that's going to be. It might be a tough one for you, especially if you keep kicking against the goads. But he will make you like Jesus. And you will be sanctified.